0: In this third and last part of the Heidelberg Catechism, we now consider uh, gratitude. Uh, If you will recall, we began the Heidelberg Catechism with question two, where it asks, What must you know to live in the joy of this comfort, the comfort that we have in knowing that in Christ, who uh, is our Savior and our Lord, that we have been delivered from sin and Satan? and that He keeps us and watches over us so that not even a hair should fall from our head apart from the will of our Heavenly Father and that all things work together for the good of our salvation. Well, in that question, what must you know? It says there are three things. First, how great my sins and misery are. How I've been delivered from all of my sins and misery. And thirdly, how I'm to be grateful for such a deliverance. And now we've arrived at this third point. How we are to be grateful. And so as we consider Lord's Day 32, we begin with question 86. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of our own, why then should we do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed us by His blood, is also renewing us by His Spirit into His image. So that with our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God for his benefits, and that he may be praised through us, and further, so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. Can those who can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and unrepentant ways? By no means. Scripture tells us that no unchaste person, no idolater, thief, no covetous person, no drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like will inherit the kingdom of God. Now let's turn in our Bibles to Romans 12. Romans 12. And we're going to read the first two verses. Romans follows the same uh, structure as the Heidelberg Catechism. And so let's begin with Romans 12, beginning in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In the film Saving Private Ryan, the opening scene portrays the massive military operation of the invasion of Normandy on D-Day during World War II. And at the end of this very intense sequence, we come to find out that there happened to be three brothers who all died in the invasion. Out of compassion for the mother, the army sends out a squad of rangers to go behind enemy lines and retrieve the last surviving son of the Ryan family. And as you might expect, this raised concerns among the soldiers because they were putting their own lives on the line to rescue this one man. Is one person's life worth more than the life of another? Is his life worth more than the life of eight men? Well, as the film progresses, one of those eight men dies. And the captain, who's played by Tom Hanks, he says, This Ryan better be worth it. He better go home and uh, find some cure for some disease or uh, find or uh, invent a longer lasting light bulb. Eventually, they find Private Ryan. But in saving Private Ryan, all of those men are killed in battle except for just two. And so at the end of this battle, the captain sitting just uh, as he's about to die, he says to Private Ryan, earn this, earn it. We sometimes can get in the mindset that this too could have been Christ's last words to us. Dying for us on the cross, he cries out, earn this. Paul says that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So even though salvation is an unmerited gift of God and that we never can take any credit for it, uh, we nevertheless might be inclined to think that we ought to be doing something now in repayment for Christ's sacrifice. The Christian life is to be lived trying to measure up to Christ's sacrifice, making ourselves worthy of Him. By earning it. Now what are you doing to make it up to Him? Are you praying enough? Are you reading your Bible enough? How's your evangelism going? And you haven't been missing any church, have you? Are you loving your neighbor? Are you giving to the homeless? Visiting those who are in prison? Giving to widows and orphans and visiting the the shut-ins? Are you loving God enough? How much are you putting into the offering plate? Are you growing in holiness and following God's commands? You most certainly better not to be sinning. What are you doing to earn Christ's sacrifice? Now if you hear this and you think, you know, you're right, I should be doing better. Or if you're thinking, yeah, you know what? I'm doing pretty good. I got this earning thing down. Well, I have some bad news for you. You aren't doing it. And try as you might to do better. You won't do enough. Because the truth is, None of us will ever be able to do enough because Christ's blood is priceless. There's nothing you can do to earn it. And you will always fail because you are not perfect. Now on the other hand, if you are thinking, I really don't need to worry about earning it. In fact, I don't even need to worry about following God's law. Well, Peter has bad news for you. He says, be holy for God is holy. As we read in the Catechism, we, we read in uh, question 87, no unchaste person, no idolater, adulterer, thief, no covetous person, no drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a lot of bad news for us. Whether you think you're really good or whether you, you think it really just doesn't matter, there's bad news. Because you're not good enough, but you're still expected to do this, these things. Well... well wherever you land on the issue, there is good news. Christ has not called us to earn it. And while we are to be holy as God is holy, we don't do it of our own strength. We have been saved from our works, those sinful works, so that we may be saved for good works. And we now do those works in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And our motivation for doing good works is found in the fact That we now live in freedom for the first time to do those works which are pleasing to God. And so in view of the mercies of God, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. In view of what Christ has done for us, we now live in gratitude. God has called us to live out His holy law. Now as you may have noticed, there are some false views of the law. There are two main ways that people have misunderstood their relationship to God's law. There is on the one hand the legalist, and then on the other hand there is the antinomian. Uh, Behind both antinomianism and legalism is the issue of how law and gospel, how faith and works relate to one another. And as you can hear in the word legalism, well it contains the word legal. Uh, Legal, it comes from Latin, means law. So the legalist is literally a lawist. He is living according to the law. In the legalist system, we can only view God through the lens of the law. In fact, at its very root, legalism divorces the law which God gives from the God who gives it. The law is simply the list of demands that we must perform in order for God to accept us. The legalist then fails to see how this law, which is given, is given from a gracious and compassionate God who loves us. The law then for the legalists is a burden. The law is upheld and promoted at the expense of the gospel. And we see various forms of legalism in Scripture. We see it in the Pharisees, for example. They taught that the blessing uh, which God gives can only be achieved, uh, it can only be obtained through the works of the law. In their concern to keep the law, they even added to it. They uh, started to create their own laws as a kind of fence around the law. And when people had failed to keep their own laws, the the pharisaical law, they started to judge those people severely and even ostracize them. So we can see in legalism both the spirit of law righteousness or uh, works righteousness, as well as uh, the tendency to add to God's law and to judge others by that additional standard. And so we we also see in Scripture uh, the heresy of the Galatians and the Colossians. There are some in the church of Galatia called the Judaizers who are teaching that in order to be saved, you have to not just believe and follow Jesus, you also have to follow the law of Moses and be circumcised. Meanwhile, in the church of Colossus, there was a teaching that took Greek philosophy, which taught that the body was inherently bad, and combined it with Judaism and Christianity. So the Colossians were teaching that in addition to belief in Jesus, One had to perform ascetic practices of self-denial and also follow the Jewish religious ceremonies for salvation. And then we also see legalism with what I've been calling the earn it mentality. Even though there's nothing we do to merit our salvation, we nevertheless need to be living so as to make ourselves worthy of Christ's sacrifice. Now with legalism, there is a danger of overconfidence on the one hand and despair on the other. For the one who is overconfident, he looks at the law and believes that he can do it. Like the rich young ruler, he says, all of these things I've kept since my youth. And among these, there is a tendency to develop a self-righteous spirit. It's not enough that, that these legalists are dotting their holy eyes and crossing their righteous T's. They start looking at what other people are doing, and then they start to judge them by their own standards. There's, for example, uh, the compa- they, they start to uh, compare other people in terms of prayer, like how much time they spend praying, uh, whether their prayers are very eloquent. They start to uh, judge them whether or not they are going to the soup kitchens or reading their Bible enough. But as with any youth who thinks he's better than he really is, the self righteous legalist will be humbled. Because just like the people they compare themselves to, they fall far short of God's standards. And it's only a matter of time before that becomes a painful lesson for them. For pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Consequently, for these, this overconfidence, it turns into ever-increasing doubt, leading to overwhelming despair and defeat. They realize that they can never measure up to God's demands. And since they have divorced God's law from the gracious God who gives it, they become full of anxiety and fear. This is the person who fearfully approaches God because for him, God is only a judge. This is the kind of person who keeps himself from the table of the Lord's Supper because his failure in holiness convinces him that he is not worthy or worse, that he isn't really a believer. They start interpreting providence and conclude that all of the suffering they've been experiencing, it must be because of some kind of unrepentant sin. And God feels very distant from them. They feel as though they are just a huge disappointment. As if they committed the unforgivable sin and God is saying to them, you know what, you've done it. This is enough. You are cast out. You are not my child anymore. Get out of here. Now the antinomian, on the other hand, he is against the law. Its name comes from the Greek anti, which means against, and namos, which means law, so they are literally against the law. For the antinomian, the law is completely done away with because of the Gospel. He hears the Gospel and believes that he now has license to sin. In believing the Gospel, then, he compromises the law of God. He looks at God's law and says, well, Jesus fulfilled that law. I don't need to worry about it anymore. At the root of antinomianism is the separation of God's holy character from His gracious disposition toward us. As the saying goes, God likes to forgive, and I like to sin, what a marvelous relationship. We see examples of this in Scripture. We see for example, in Romans 6. There we read about the person who hears Paul's profound declaration that in Christ we have the righteousness of God. And where sin abounded, grace abounds all the more. And so in reading this, this uh, antinomian responds, well then let's get on with the sin so that this grace thing can abound all the more. And this is what we could call the license towards sins of commission. Uh, This person feels free to commit sins, like idolatry or adultery, because all sins have been forgiven. On the other hand, if we go to James chapter 2, we read about another kind of antinomian, the person here who commits the sin of omission. He sees a person in need, and while he doesn't explicitly sin against this person, Neither does he do anything to help him except chant some kind of empty platitude. Go in peace, be warmed and filled. While this person has the means and the opportunity to see to the needs of uh, their brother or sister in Christ, he nevertheless feels free to reject him. But despite Scripture's clear denunciation of antinomianism, we still see it alive and well today. There are those who some call carnal Christians, They have been given false confidence because they prayed the sinner's prayer. And since they prayed that prayer, and since you cannot lose your salvation, well, they feel as though they can just live their life however they wish. They can still continue to live and sin. This has been seen in the so-called lordship salvation controversy. There have been some who teach that someone can make Christ his Savior, but not necessarily his Lord. While the decision of faith is necessary for salvation, the decision to repent and live in holiness is necessary only for those who want to be Jesus' disciple. This is what Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he calls this cheap grace. It's grace that comes at no cost. He says, Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. So how do we respond to legalism and antinomianism? The temptation might be to treat them as though they are opposites, because they seem opposed to one another. On the one hand, legalism um, uh, teaches that we have to keep the law, and then antinomianism teaches that we don't really need to live this law anymore. So our temptation would be then to prescribe for one error just the other, approaching the legalist as though we were antinomian, saying, look, you can't keep this law, and you don't even have to worry about it anymore because Jesus kept it. And then we go to the antinomian and say... um, well, you know what? The law really still is enforced. And you better uh, pick it up and start you know, acting it out because uh, you're really going to blow it and you, know, you don't want to go to heaven. I mean, you don't want to go to hell, do you? But antinomianism and legalism, they're not opposites. As Sinclair Ferguson says, they are non-identical twins that emerged from the same womb. The antinomian and the legalist, they both cheapen the gospel and the law. For them, uh, the law is not as demanding as it really is. The legalist feels that he can keep God's law. He can satisfy uh, God and and please God by his own self-righteousness. Meanwhile, the antinomian gets rid of the law altogether. At the same time, for both of them, the gospel is not as liberating as it really is. The legalist never experiences the sweetness of the truth that he doesn't need to make himself worthy of God's acceptance. And the antinomian never learns the liberating grace that enables him to be most truly human by living out God's law. And so the bad news ends up being not bad enough, and the good news is just not good enough. The reason for these similarities is they have the same root problem. They both divorce God from His law. For the legalists, the law comes only from a judgmental God, not a gracious and loving Father. Meanwhile, for the antinomian, the law comes from a God who loves us in spite of our sins, but not a God who is holy and righteous and just. And So as it turns out, the opposite of both of these errors is actually just the gospel itself. It serves as the antidote to both of these errors. To both the legalist and the antinomian, we preach the gospel. In this way, we we reconnect God with his law. In the Gospel, we see that God is a God of both law and grace. The God who arraigns us before His judgment seat is the same God who in mercy pardons us of all of our guilt. In the Gospel, we see that the, the Christ who died for us, well, He died because God is just. And He died for us because He's also merciful. The Gospel that saves us from the condemnation of God's law is the same Gospel that empowers us now to live in accordance with that same law. And what is the Gospel? Very simply, the Gospel is nothing other than Jesus Christ Himself. The Gospel is not simply good news about Jesus, but it is Jesus Himself, both in His person and in His work. There is a pervasive error of separating Christ from His benefits. When this is done, the Gospel ends up just becoming those benefits. We reduce the Gospel to justification, to regeneration or sanctification or glorification. But since we cannot separate the person of Christ from His work, neither can we separate His person from the benefits that we get through Him. As Calvin puts it, as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from Him, all that He has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. All that He possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with Him. We are not simply saved through Christ. We are also saved in Christ. By abstracting or separating the benefits from the benefactor, we are in danger of dividing the gifts that Christ has obtained as if they are not all simultaneously ours. All that Christ has obtained when we are put into Christ by the Spirit in our union with Him, they all are ours. In Jesus, in the whole Christ, we are both justified and sanctified. In Him, we have the imputation of righteousness as well as the impartation of His righteousness. In Jesus, we are declared righteous, and in Him, we have the power to live in newness of life and the power to put to death what is earthly in us. And not only does the Gospel give us the power to do this, it also gives us the motivation. In hearing this wonderful news, we now live out of gratitude. Through the Gospel of Jesus Christ, we now are freed up by the law to live according to it out of gratitude. Who of us would not be forever grateful for the person who gave his life for ours? How would we want to express our gratitude for that person? Well, we wouldn't feel like we owe it to that person necessarily. We don't feel obligated to serve that person who saves us. Because if we feel obligated, that gift is no longer free. But we express our thanks by doing those things that our Savior cares for. If a surgeon were to save our lives, how would we express our gratitudes towards him? Would we say, you know, I am just so thankful that you saved my life, and I'm just going to sit here in this hospital bed for the rest of my life, telling everybody who goes by, look at this wonderful surgeon. He's such a great surgeon. So just thank you so much. I love you. You're just so wonderful. The doctor, you're probably looking at you and look, I didn't just save your life, so you could just sit here in this hospital bed, get up and get out of here, and go help somebody. Do something with your life. And it's the same with God. Again, we are not only saved from the law, but we are also saved for the law. As Luther said, God doesn't need your good works, your neighbor does. So go out and love your neighbor. Living out of gratitude, it is the greatest motivation. Instead of being full of trepidation and fear of disappointing God, fearful that we are never measuring up, instead of being told to just do it, we have received the announcement that perfect love casts out all fear. And that while we can never just do it, never able to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, it is Christ who has done it for us. Therefore, we are now free to live with thankfulness in our hearts. And even when you fail, and you will fail, the verdict of God's forgiveness has already been delivered. It's not guilty. And the good news, it just keeps getting better. In Christ, and by the Spirit, we are given the power and the desire to do this. Instead of working for our salvation, we work out the salvation that has already been given to us. We work out the salvation not through our own ability, but in response to God's gracious will who works in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Michael Horton uses an illustration of a sailboat to talk about how now Christians relate to the law and to the gospel. Somebody can have a sailboat and have it equipped with all the most advanced guidance systems, but all of that technology, as good as it is, will do nothing for them unless they have wind in the sails. The law is that guidance system. It directs us in the way we ought to live, but it cannot itself get the boat moving The gospel is the wind that is in our sails. We can get ourselves out to sea and enjoy the trip as we use this wonderful navigation system, but what happens when the winds die down and we find ourselves dead in the water? When the storm clouds gather on the horizon, we realize that as good as our navigation system is, no matter how good the advice is we get from our friends, it cannot itself fill the sails to return us safely to harbor. And so as Michael Horton says, he says, Purposes, laws, principles, suggestions, and good advice can set our course, but only the gospel promise can fill our sails and restore to us the joy of our salvation. Often we can think of the law as a kind of tightrope that we need to walk on. And when we fall, well, that's when grace comes in like a net to catch us so that we can get back up again on that tightrope. But in actuality, there is no rope. We live and we move and we have our being in the net. We have freedom to live in holiness because of that net. Living in the net means that we are free to love God, albeit imperfectly, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we are free to love our neighbors as ourselves. And even our good works, they contribute to our assurance because a healthy tree bears healthy fruit. It's a natural consequence of being a new creation in Christ that we bear good fruit. And in so doing, we are assured that it is because we are in Christ. Assured that we have forgiveness of sins, that we have the righteousness of God. And yet you might wonder, what if my intentions are imperfect? Well, everyone's intentions are imperfect. Christ still died for your good works. What about my bad works? Because a diseased tree bears bad fruit, doesn't it? Now, it's not... For us to be fruit inspectors, wondering if our fruit is good enough, whether we have been producing enough fruit. Just respond to God's call and realize that you are bearing good fruit. We are never given the promise that we will only ever bear good fruit. After all, in First John chapter 1, we read that uh, he who says he does not commit a sin, well, he has actually uh, fooled himself. The truth is not in him. So do you bear healthy fruit? Then you are a healthy tree. That's just what we hear from John 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, and in me you bear much fruit. We, have, we bear the fruit of the Spirit. But since, you might ask, since we are made in God's image, and since we have the works of the law written on our hearts, as it says in Romans 2, well, don't we have a natural inclination to at least sometimes do good works? So, how do I know that those are really from the Spirit? How do I know that I'm really saved? Well, the problem is is that you're starting to ground your assurance in the works themselves rather than seeing them as a sign of salvation which contribute to your assurance. The problem is, is that you are divorcing those works from the one in whom and by whom you perform those works. You're becoming a legalist. The ground of our assurance is Christ. Therefore, look to Christ. When you feel like your works just aren't enough, when you continue to fail against sin, when you aren't measuring up, you'll need to look to Christ. But you might just be wondering, well, how do I know my faith is real? You readily accept that Jesus is able to save, but what you want to know is whether you truly believe in the Christ who saves. If you're wondering that, you're overthinking it. The nature of faith is to look outside of yourself. When you wonder if your faith is saving, you are being introspective. You aren't using faith the way it's supposed to be used. And so it should come as no surprise to you that you are struggling with assurance because when we only look to ourselves, we only see our failings and our sinfulness. We only see a weak faith. But the nature of faith is extrospective. In faith, we look outside of ourselves and to Christ. It is Christ who saves. So are you looking to Him? If not, then why not? Because you feel as though sin stands in your way? Well, Christ has taken care of that sin. So look to Christ. As numerous as your sins are, as badly as you feel like you've sinned, it's never too late. So look to Christ. Look to Christ not only for your justification. You look to Christ not simply for your sanctification, though that is certainly uh, right, the wind and the sails for us. We look to Christ not only for the motivation to do good works, but we also look to Christ for our assurance. And there are things that we can be doing that help us look to Christ for our assurance. It's just those things that we've been considering the last couple months in the Catechism. Attend the means of grace. Come to church and hear the gospel which directs our gaze to Christ. Remember your baptism in which the promises of God in Christ were sealed to you. Where you see that you are a new creation in Christ. Come to the table where through faith and by the Spirit you feed upon Christ. The Christ who lived and died arose and ascended and will come again for you. Do not forsake the communion of saints, the body of Christ, who will be here to support you when you go through the valley of the shadow of death. Take your prayers to God. Direct your gaze to God in Christ and by the Spirit. And in doing these things, you will find that good works will just naturally flow from you because you will be so full of gratitude Which them, and, and those, those good works will continue to build on your assurance. We look to our fruit and find that truly, indeed, I am in Christ. But the fruits themselves are not the ground of our assurance. It is Christ. And therefore, when you need assurance, look to Christ. We don't need to live our lives weighed down with guilt, wondering whether we are measuring up. This is just what happened to Private Ryan. At the end of the film, after living what must have been a restless, guilt-ridden life, wondering if he's actually doing what this dying captain told him to do to earn this, doing his utmost to make himself worthy and deserving, James Ryan is now a very old man and he comes to the grave of that man who told him to earn this. And you can see in his posture that he has carried this burden with him. This guilt and this sense of failure. And he says, every day I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. And I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes I've earned what all of you have done for me. And then he turns to his wife and on the edge of despair, with pain in his eyes, he says to her, tell me I've, lived, I've led a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. Desperately seeking affirmation, desperately hoping against hope that he has made himself worthy of their sacrifice. The truth is, though, that he didn't discover a cure for some disease. He didn't invent some longer-lasting light bulb. He didn't measure up. He didn't earn it. He never could. And neither can we ever measure up. Neither could we ever earn it. But Jesus does not leave us with that obligation. We don't earn this. We are never left wondering and doubting if we are actually doing it. And since we are not burdened by that requirement, we find that grace is completely free. We never earn it. And it's precisely for this reason that we are freed up for the first time to give thanks by living in the freedom of God's law and loving Him and loving our neighbors. You do not earn it because Jesus earned it. He earned your justification. He earned your sanctification. He earned your good works. He earned your assurance. Every step of the way, it is Christ. You do not need to make yourself worthy Because you are already made worthy in Christ. God has set His love upon you. And He gave you His own Son. So we have peace and we have comfort. Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you peace. Sometimes we make ourselves weary and heavy laden by our frenetic good works, trying to measure up. But Jesus says, come to me and I will give you peace. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is light. My yoke is easy. So come, Look to Christ and see that you are free. And, and let us with thankfulness, with that wind in our sails, turn out to service of one another in this church and in the streets and in the community. All praise to God, and to Him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would be exalted in our works, that we would not be weighed down by trying to measure up, but that we would be freed by the realization that Christ's good works are sufficient for us and that he sustains us by his spirit in this life. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would just have gratitude, hearts of gratitude, eager to love you not so that we may please you, but because you have made us pleasing to you. And so we offer up our praise to you and we offer up our thanks, looking to you through Christ and by the Spirit to give us everything we need in this life. pray this in Christ's name, amen.